So today I want to start with a story. Some of you may have heard this story before, um, but it is apt for today's lesson, and I want to share it again. So there was this little boy who built a boat. He built the sail, and he had it all fixed up. He put tar on the hull to make sure that it did not leak. He painted it with precision and beauty. Once he had finished creating the boat, the boy took it out to the lake and pushed it into the water, hoping that it would sail. Sure enough, this little boat was up to the task, and the breeze filled the sail, and it billowed and pushed this little boat along the waves. But before the boy knew it, the boat had been blown beyond his reach. He waded into the water and tried to grab it as fast as he could, but all he could do was watch it sail away. He hoped the breeze would shift and drive his little boat back to him, but he just continued to watch it float further and further away. When he arrived back home crying, his mother asked, What's wrong? Did it not work? His only reply was, It worked too well. A few days later, the little boy was in town and walked past a second-hand store. There in the window, he saw a boat. It looked just like his boat that he had lost. He went inside and inspected the boat. And sure enough, it was the boat that he had built and had lost. He took the boat up to the owner of the store and explained to him that this was his boat. He showed him how he had made it. A little scratch here, the place where he tarred too much there. The paint not quite blended correctly. Assured that he had proven that the boat was his, he turned around to walk out of the door. When the owner of the shop stopped him, wait a minute, son, that may have been your boat, but now it is mine. I bought it from someone just yesterday. If you want it, you will have to buy it. The boy didn't have enough money to buy it, so he began to work to make money so he could get his little boat. He worked every day as much as he could until he finally had enough to buy the boat back. He went back to the shop, took the boat back to the counter with the money. He laid the money out for the owner and smiled. He took his boat in his arms and hugged it and was heard saying as he left, Now you are twice mine. First I made you, and now I have bought you. Just as this boy loved what he had created and was willing to sacrifice to be able to redeem his boat, so it was similarly with God who loved those he created and chose as vessels of mercy and was willing to sacrifice his only begotten son to pay the redemption price. Without the love of God towards sinners, we would not be here this morning talking about anything that I'm about to speak about. Our redemption must begin with this love that God's word declares to be a distinguishing love, a different kind of love. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul continues this description of God's love toward us a few chapters later in Romans 8.31 and 32 where he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Truly, God is 
love. It is not something that God may choose to be or choose not to be. He is love inherently and eternally. As God is spirit and as he is light, so he is love. It is because of this fact that the redemption of anyone ever happens. It is solely due to the free and sovereign good pleasure of his own goodness that he chose anyone to be heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The, the reason resides wholly in himself and proceeds with determinations that are uniquely his. It is the love of God that determined before the foundations of the earth that God would bring about a way of salvation for sinful man. It is the love of God that determined through divine election who would be called to this salvation. It is the love of God that determined that this salvation would be accomplished through sending the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, to live a perfect and sinless life amongst the very sinners he was sent to save, then laying down his life freely to be crucified and shed his blood as a spotless lamb led to slaughter. It was this sacrifice that satisfied the eternal wrath of God upon chosen sinners. The cross of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. The supreme quality of the demonstration resides in the extreme costliness of the sacrifice. The costliness of the sacrifice assures us of the greatness of the love and guarantees the giving of all other wonderful and free gifts from God. But why is the love of God so different? It is because his love is directed toward those that are his enemies, those that are haters of God, those that are full of sin. Sin is the contradiction of God, and he must react against it with holy indignation, outrage. This is to say that sin must meet with divine judgment. It is this unbreakable sanctity of God's law the unchanging principle of holiness and the unflinching demand of justice that makes mandatory the conclusion that salvation from sin without punishment and propitiation is inconceivable. It is this principle that explains the sacrifice of the Lord of glory, the agony of Gethsemane, and the abandonment of the accursed tree. It is this principle that undergirds the great truth that God is just and the justifier of those that believes in Jesus. For in the work of Christ, the standards of holiness and the demands of justice have been fully vindicated. God set, forth, set him forth to be a propitiation, to declare his righteousness. The Bible describes mankind as being slaves to sin. The work of Christ on the cross fully satisfied the justice of God towards sin and brought about our redemption. The idea of redemption is more than just a general deliverance. In the Old Testament, you remember, may remember the time when Lot was capturing, captured um, by a neighboring nation, and Abraham put together an army, and he went out to deliver Lot. He defeated that nation so that Lot and his family were delivered. That is not the idea of redemption at all. The language of redemption is the idea of a purchase for a price, similar to the boy in the story. Specifically, it is a ransom. This ransom secures a release by a payment of a price. Without Christ, we are in bondage to sin. It is the shedding of blood 
and death of Christ on the cross that was the price of our redemption. Our ransom paid to release us from that bondage. And there was only one, and there will never need to be another, who could bear the full weight of the divine judgment upon sin and bear it so as to end it for those chosen to receive that salvation. The lost will eternally suffer in the satisfaction of justice, and while they are eternally suffering, they will never fully satisfy that justice for their sins. Christ satisfied justice for those he died for. Isaiah says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus was made sin, and he was made a curse. He bore our iniquities, our sins. He bore the unrelieved and unmitigated damnation of sin, and he finished it. He fully satisfied justice for sin. We rightly argue that the satisfaction of Christ is the only satisfaction for sin and is so perfect and final that it leaves no disciplinary burden for any sin, for any believer. The love of God for those that he elected to be a recipient of his mercy and grace is the cause of all that Christ accomplished in redemption. We are wandering this earth with no hope at all without the love of God intervening and bringing about the payment of the redemption price to satisfy the wrath of God and to buy us back from the bondage to sin so that we may be called children of God. The work of Christ accomplished our redemption. It is what secured our position as co-heirs with Christ having faith in God and Christ our Savior, being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, able to walk in the same manner that Jesus walked. But how is redemption then applied to us? If Jesus accomplished the redemption, paid the price, how is it then applied to us? How is it it given to us and effectually accomplished? This is where I want to introduce something beyond redemption, and we call it the Ordo Salutis. The Ordo Salutis is Latin for order of salvation. To put it in other terms, the Ordo Salutis is the steps that God takes in bringing those he has chosen from sinners destined for eternal wrath and destruction all the way to redeemed, glorified saints spending eternity in heaven with God. There are basically nine steps, and those steps are election, effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, which also includes faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. The order of our salvation is how God has applied the redemptive work of Christ to us. Have you ever gone to see a play? And when you go to see a play, think about what you experience and see when you are at that play. All that you get to experience and see is exactly what the director wants you to see. You get to see the props. You get to see the actors. But there are a lot of things that you don't get to see or experience when watching a play. You don't see the people behind the scenes that are working to move the props and to change the set. You don't see the director. You don't see the makeup artist or the hairstylist. Not only do you not see those things, but you're also not privy to all the things that occurred well before you even bought a ticket to go see that show. 
all the writing of the script, the producer finding a director, the director and casting crew going through, re, through um, auditions and selecting the actors. You don't see all the actors and the director going through all the rehearsals. Even though you do not see these things and really don't even think about having, have them having to happen, without them, all your, experience watch, all your experience watching the play would never be the same. In a similar way, there are many things within the Order Salutis that you do not understand that you were experiencing. Things that happened beforehand that you do not know about. Things that happened to you that you don't really even know has happened until you read about it in God's word. Think about election. Do you guys remember the time, the very moment that you were elected? Did you feel it? Did you experience it? Did you see it? Even regeneration. As God, the Holy Spirit, has changed our hearts so that we might come to Christ, did you feel it? Did you see it? But it happened. Not only do many of these things happen within you, I'm sorry, not only do many of these things happen without you even knowing about it, many of the parts of the Order Salutis seem to happen almost at the same time. But because of the word of God and logic, we know that they must happen in this order no matter what it feels like to experience it. We must be elected before we can be called. We must be called before we can regen be regenerated. We must be regenerated before we can go through that conversion experience and so forth and so on. And there's only one source where we can determine a proper understanding of Christ's redeeming work. That source is the Word of God, the Bible. No matter what we may think we feel or how we interpret or experience our experience in our minds, the Bible is our final authority to truth. It is mankind's tendency to attempt to place upon the work of Christ an interpretation which brings it closer to human experience and accomplishment. In our experience, it seems as though we are the ones that are coming to Christ in our salvation and that it is we who are seeking him and we are tempted to take some, of, some, if not all, of the credit for our redemption. In essence, this either exalts man's work in salvation or diminishes Christ's work on the cross. It is important to understand that none of the steps in redemption are dependent upon you and what you might accomplish. Truly, you will find that in the process of, in the process of sanctification, you will play a part. But that part is in full cooperation with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you are a believer. Without God the Spirit working to accomplish your sanctification, you would have no hope and would do very little, namely nothing, on your own. The idea that we play any part of our, in our redemption, any part of these steps, is a wickedness deeper than the ocean and as vast as the universe. There is no human work that can reproduce that which the Lord of glory, the Son of God incarnate, alone endured and accomplished on the cross for our sake and for the glory of God. This process of salvation exhibits the overflowing abundance of God's goodness, wisdom, grace, and love. John Murray said that this superabundance appears in the eternal counsel of God respecting salvation. It appears in the historic accomplishment of redemption by the work of Christ once for all, and it appears in the application of redemption 
continuously and progressively till it reaches its consummation in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. But when we think about the application of our redemption, it is easy to think of it as one simple and indivisible act. And our experience in salvation agrees with this assessment. But remember that our final authority for truth is not our experience, but the truth of God's word. There we find that in reality, the application of redemption is made up of a series of acts and processes. These acts and processes are distinct and separate from each other and occur in a specific order. This is what we call the order salutis. And while it would be good to look at all nine of these steps of God's redeeming work applied to his elect, we are only going to spend time looking at justification today. To start looking at justification, we must first ask a question, and a very important question. How can man be just with God? How can he be right with God? But in reality, that's even too simple of a question, is it not? It is not simply how can man be just with God, but how can sinful man be just with God? Sin is always against God. And the essence of sin is to be against God. The person who is against God cannot be right with God. For if we are against God as sinners, then God is against us. It could not be otherwise. God cannot be indifferent or complacent towards that which is a contradiction of himself. The heart of man's spiritual dilemma is that he is incapable of overcoming the total sinfulness that separates him from the holy God. No amount of law-keeping can make a person righteous because the root of sinfulness is in the fallenness of man's heart, not in actions. Man's basic problem is in what he is, not in what he does. Sinful acts are but the outward expression of a depraved nature that contains sinful thoughts. A person who hates inwardly is a murderer, whether or not he takes another person's life or not. Consequently, no amount of works of the law can save a person, because even the best of human works cannot change the nature of the person doing them. They are but filthy rags without the presence of the Holy Spirit. The law is important as a mirror to show us our sinfulness, but it can only reveal sin, not remove it. If we are called by God and come to Christ in faith, we do good works and try to be as obedient as we can, not so that we can be saved but because we are grateful to the one who has saved us. It is God's saving work in regeneration to cause our hearts to desire what God desires, and that is to be holy, because our God is holy. Romans 1.18 makes it clear that those who are sinners or the ungodly and unrighteous are recipients of God's wrath, and therefore not right, not just with God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is our situation, and it is our relationship to God. So I'll, I will ask again, how can we be right with God? The answer, of course, is that we cannot be right with Him. We are all wrong with Him. And we are all wrong with him because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In today's world and even in the modern church, justification is to such an extent a meaningless word. The church and especially the world around us do not understand 
the profound reality of who God is. They do not truly grasp his majesty and holiness and what that really means. To make it worse, sin, if reckoned with at all, is little more than a misfortune or a mistake. It is rarely looked at seriously. The modern church ignores or worse dismisses the reality of the wrath of God towards sin because of the holiness of God requiring such a response. But they ignore it. The realism of the wrath of God, of the reality and gravity of our guilt, and of the divine condemnation is lost. It is only with a true and right understanding of sin and the holiness of God that we, are, that we will be able to truly appreciate and understand the reality of God's grace and the justification of the ungodly. For sinful man to become just or right with God, there must be a complete reversal in our relationship with God. The doctrine of justification is the answer, and justification is a free act of God's free grace. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, Romans 8.33. To define justification in simple terms is to say that it is God declaring someone to be righteous. Quickly, there are two things I want to point out about justification. First, it is God that justifies. We do not justify ourselves. And this needs to be underlined. Justification is not because of anything that we do. It is not any religious exercise in which we engage, however noble and good that religious exercise might be. If we are truly to understand justification and appropriate its grace, we must focus our attention on the action of God in justifying the ungodly. Romans 3.24 says, Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So it is God who justifies. Second, this is a little bit more complicated, but it is important distinction to note that justification does not and I repeat, it does not mean that we are made righteous or good or holy or upright. It is perfectly true that in the application of redemption as a whole, God makes people holy and upright. He renews them after his own image. He begins to do this in the step of regeneration. And he carries it on in the work of sanctification. And he will then perfect it in glorification. But justification does not refer to this renewing and sanctifying grace of God. Think about a person that goes to court before a judge and endures a trial. At the end of that trial, the judge simply declares an accused person justified or right in the eyes of the law. The judge does not make that person an upright person in regards to the law. In a word, justification is simply a declaration or a pronouncement in regard to the relationship between the person to the law which he, the judge, is required to administer. Romans 5.16 says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Listen to Deuteronomy 25.1. If there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the judge decides their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. 
It is not the function of the judge to make people righteous. The meaning is simple, is simply and only that the judge was to give a just judgment and therefore they would declare the righteous to be righteous just as they were to declare the wicked to be wicked. To drive home that justification is not being made righteous, let's look at Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now, it would not be an abomination to the Lord to make the wicked upright. It would be a highly commendable thing if we could convert a wicked man and make him a righteous man. The abomination for God is in giving a judgment that is contrary to the truth by declaring a man just or right in regard to the law, when in reality that person is wicked and should be condemned for his wickedness and sin. Conversely, when a judge condemns someone, he is not making that person wicked. He is simply declaring something that is already the truth. Now, we are not going to talk about regeneration, but in general, that doctrine is in regard to the work of God, the Spirit, changing our hearts so that we are able to hear the effectual call and understand our sin and our need for a Savior, and then go through the process of conversion through faith and repentance. So, regeneration is an act of God within us, while justification is a judgment of God of who we are. The distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of a surgeon in the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. That is not what a judge does. He gives a verdict, declaring our legal status. If we are innocent, he declares us just and righteous. Considering that God cannot lie, this implies that the righteous state or standing declared by God to be true is assumed in the fact that he is declaring it to be so. When a judge, for example, declares a person to be righteous in terms of the law which he is administering, the judge simply declares what he finds to be in this case. He does not give to the person the righteous standing before the court. This is why judges are to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Justification in such a case merely takes account of the character and conduct of the person concerned and the judge gives his verdict accordingly. He justifies those who are righteous. In a court, the declaration of righteousness is only declaring what is already true. This makes the justification that we are concerned with here, biblical justification, as a glorious doctrine. In a court, the judge declares the righteous to be righteous and the wicked to be wicked. But God is declaring someone that is wicked to be righteous. It is not the justification of persons who are righteous, but of persons who are wicked, and therefore of persons who are under God's condemnation and curse. How can this be? God's judgment is always according to truth. It is not only one of fairness. His judgment is of perfect fairness. How then can he justify those who are unrighteous and totally unrighteous at that? We are now faced with something completely unique. It cannot be denied that God justifies the ungodly, as Romans 4, 5 declares, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. If man were to do this, it would be an abomination in God's sight. 
Man must condemn the wicked, and he must justify only the righteous. God justifies the wicked, and he does what no man may do. Yet God is not unrighteous. He is just when he justifies the ungodly. What is it that enables him to be just when he justifies sinners? It is here that our simple definition of to declare righteous is not fully adequate to completely express what is occurring in justification. In God's justification of sinners, there is a totally new factor which does not hold in any other case of justification. And this new factor arises from the totally different situation which God's justification of sinners reflects and from the marvelous provisions of God's grace and justice to meet this situation. God does what no other could do, and he does what he does nowhere else. Understand, understanding Romans 5, 17 through 19 is important. For it says, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. It is clear through this passage that justification, which results in eternal life, is regarded by Paul as consisting of our receiving righteousness as a free gift and this righteousness is none other than the righteousness of the one man, Jesus Christ. It is the righteousness of his obedience. I'm sure you remember the doctrine of imputation. What is imputation? Simply, it is to charge to one's account. Justification is therefore a decisive act whereby the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. And we are accordingly accepted as righteous in God's sight. So we come back to our question. How can God justify the ungodly? The righteousness of Christ is the righteousness of his perfect obedience. A righteousness undefiled and undefilable. A righteousness which not only warrants the justification of the ungodly, but one that necessarily produces and compels such justification. God cannot but accept into his favor those who are supplied with the righteousness of his own Son. While his wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, his good pleasure is also revealed from heaven upon the righteousness of his well-beloved and only begotten. Those justified through Christ's imputed righteousness will then be able to rejoice in the words of Isaiah. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Isaiah 45, 25, 24 and 25. Isaiah also says in 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with the jewels. What a glorious truth that God will wrap us with a robe of righteousness, the robe of righteousness of Christ, 
No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication or justification is from me, declares the Lord. Isaiah 54, 17. The imputation of Christ's righteousness also gives more meaning to Romans 8.33 that we read earlier. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. If God has declared you righteous, if he has justified you, then who would dare condemn you? It is God, the sovereign creator of all things, who has declared that you are just and right due to the imputed righteousness of Christ, whose obedience and righteousness is complete. And if he has declared it, then it is, then it is so. And no one can dispute God's declaration of what is true. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is God who justifies. No one can condemn you for your wickedness because God has declared you righteous based upon the righteousness of his son. My friends, this is a glorious truth and we should continually praise our God for it. If you can find nothing else to praise God for, then I implore you to remember that you are justified and there is no condemnation anymore. Justification is both a declarative and decisively constructive act of God's free grace. It is established in you in order that it may be truly declarative. God must first establish a new relationship as well as declare it to be. The establishing act consists of the imputation to us of the obedience and righteousness of Christ. The obedience of Christ must therefore be regarded as the grounds for justification. It is the righteousness which God not only takes into account, but reckons to our account when he justifies the ungodly. When a person exercises faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she is placed in a spiritual union with Christ in the historical event of his death and resurrection, in which the penalty of sin was fully paid. If a man is convicted of a capital crime and is then put to death, the law obviously has no more claim upon him. He has paid his debt to society. Therefore, even if he were to rise from the dead, he would still be guiltless before the law, which would have no claim on this new life. So it is with the believer who dies in Christ to rise to a new life. He is free forever from any claim of the law upon him. Christ paid the law's demands when the person dies in Christ and is raised a new creation in Christ. The old man, the old self is dead. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The old man, the old self is dead, crucified with Christ, and the new man lives. Now we live to God because Christ lives in us. The life we received by faith, we now also live by faith. 
In this text, the Greek verb for live is in the perfect tense, which indicates a past completed action that has continually that continually has results. When a believer trusts in Christ for salvation, he spiritually participates with the Lord in his crucifixion and in his victory over death and sin. Paul says also in that verse, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The true Christian life is not so much a believer's living for Christ as Christ living through the believer. Therefore, the believer is living a righteous and justified life through Christ's righteousness and obedience. That we are justified by faith announces the grand article of the gospel of grace and that we are not justified by works of the law. Faith stands in opposition to works. There can be no mixture of these two. That we are justified by faith is what generates hope in a convicted sinner's heart. He knows he has nothing to offer. It assures him that it is an abomination to God to presume to offer anything toward our justification. It is the righteousness of the God-man, a righteousness which measures up to the requirements of our sinful and sin-cursed situation, a righteousness which meets all the demands of a complete and irrevocable justification, and a righteousness fulfilling all these demands because it is a righteousness of divine property and character, a righteousness undefiled, unbreakable, and unchallengeable. And I am sure there are many applications that could be brought out based upon the knowledge that those who are in Christ are justified by God. But I just want to point out a couple, a few. Number one, we must be assured of our salvation. Knowing that God justifies sinners who are called to faith in Christ should give you assurance of your salvation if you have answered the call. If there was a possibility that someone could lose their salvation or if someone could abandon their faith, then God would never declare them righteous. Because what he declares must be true. And the truth cannot be changed. I do not care what the world says about truth. It is not relevant. It is not fluid. Truth cannot change just because you want, don't want to believe it. Truth is truth. And it will always be truth. And God and his word is true. The apostle John declared about Christ and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What God says is true because he is truth. And if you are justified, when it, then it will always be so, yesterday, today, and forever. And that cannot change. Two. Rest in the fact that there is no one that, condemn, that can condemn you. I know already, I already mentioned this today, but I want to bring it up again in the application. There is no condemnation for the believer. None. Remember that you are the bearer of Christ's righteousness if you are in Christ. You bear the name of Christ, and he, and, and he was perfect in his obedience. Perfect in righteousness. And he has imputed all of his perfect obedience to your account. It is as if your sin never happened. It is as if your wickedness is as far from you as the east is to the west. 
Do you know why God never says that your sin is as far as the north is from the south? Think about a globe. If you are walking north, you will eventually get to the North Pole, and then you will eventually start, if you continue on that same path, you will then begin to move which direction? South. When you get to the South Pole, you will no longer be moving south. You will then begin to move north. There is an exact measurement of north to south. But think about east to west. If you begin to move east, when will you start to move west? Never. You will never move west. So we are as far away from our sin as the east is from the west because that is unmeasurable. No one can bring a charge of any sin against you. You can rest in your assurance that there is no one that can condemn you. There was a man in England who put his Rolls Royce on a boat and went across a Rolls Royce. A Rolls Royce is the perfect machine. He put his Rolls Royce on a boat and went across to the continent to go on a vacation. And while he was driving around Europe, something happened to the motor of his car. He called the Rolls Royce people back in England and asked, I'm having trouble with my car. What do you suggest I do? Well, the Rolls Royce people flew a mechanic over. The mechanic repaired the car and flew back to England and left the man to continue his vacation. As you can imagine, the fellow was wondering, how much is this going to cost me? So when he got back to England, he called the Rolls Royce people and asked how much he owed them. He received a reply from the office saying, Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. That is justification. There is no cost and there is no record of anything that we have done wrong. Rest in the fact that no one can condemn you. Finally, live a life worthy of your justified state. In essence, be sanctified. Be set apart. Be different than the world. Live like Christ. At youth camp this week, Jerry defined sanctification as being dead to sin and alive to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. If you are justified, declared to be righteous, then you should live a sanctified life as well as you can in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. I put in my notes to give you an illustration of our freedom in Christ to make these choices between sin and righteousness. And so I want you to think about a lion. A lion is brought out and there is a plate of salad. It's a nice looking salad. It has all fresh greens, tomatoes, carrots, onions, cucumbers. Some of you like fruit in your salad. Maybe it's got fruit, I don't know. 
And then there's this plate with steak next to it. Which one will the lion choose? He will choose the steak because that is his nature. Did he ever really have a choice? No. There is no choice for the lion. His nature is only to eat the steak. That is his nature. And when we are in sin, before Christ, before we are regenerated, before we are converted, before we are justified, and we are in Christ, without Christ, we are in sin. It is our nature to sin. Do we have a choice not to sin? No. Our nature is only to sin. Through the work of Christ, through his redemption, because we are justified, we now have a choice. God has given us freedom. We are free from the bondage of sin. and We now can have a choice. And it is our duty, because we are justified, to live a life that is according to that justification. To live a life that is worthy of the gospel of which we have been called. So I leave you today. With, I leave you imploring you, begging you to live a life worthy of Christ and what he has accomplished. If we are seen righteous, then let us be righteous. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful truth. We know that you only can declare what is already true. And because of the righteousness of Christ, his full and complete obedience, it is true that we can be justified. Because his righteousness is imputed upon us. Father, we pray that we will live a life worthy of this call. We will live a life worthy of your gospel, a life worthy of redemption. We thank you that you have paid the price through your son, Jesus Christ. We give you glory and give you praise in his name. Amen. Are we